Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. Even for someone like me who barely follows sports, it's clear the NFL has been facing several controversies as of late. This season, players have staged on-field protests of racial injustice, and President Trump has been outspoken in his disapproval. And over the past few years, the league has faced criticism over its response to allegations of domestic violence perpetrated by its players. Lafayette 360's senior sports reporter, Zach Zagger, will join the show later to talk about this week's developments in the legal battles over these issues. And stick around to the end of the show when we discuss a group of con artists who swindled money from dating site users through catfishing and also conned law firms into writing checks for bogus settlements. As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. And Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. Oh, a nice one. <laughs> uh, you know, as, as you noted, we're going to be talking about some sports news which I know is not is kind of outside your wheelhouse. It is, but it is like you know, it, it it does sort of snare in uh, labor issues that you're interested. In. But one thing I wanted to point out, which I talked to you about earlier today, Bill, today is actually what's known as uh, the sports equinox. What does that mean? And what that means is that all four major pro sports leagues have games today, and that is uh... like a very uh, rare occurrence. It's happened like 17 times it's in the history. Hol- it's of a holiday the- for gamblers. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. this is my husband's favorite day of the year. That yeah. I didn't even know. Get it. in your get in your four league parlay. Yeah. yeah I'll yeah. do the Senators <laughs> and uh, who's playing football? I got to talk to Joey Books and Yonkers. Who's, who's uh, playing football tonight? I don't know. Uh, I I, I should have prepared that. You really that messed up matter. this Equinox bit. <laughs> Chiefs. Chiefs. Yeah. I'll do the Senators and the Chiefs and the Bulls and the Cubs. Obviously. Okay. So, yeah. Right. And the Cubs. Yeah. And the Cubs. And the Cubs. Right. Yeah, yeah say the Cubs a few the more Chicago times. Cubs, the Chicago Cubs are playing for their lives tonight. I just Alex is a big fan, and I thought it was worth mentioning. And and producer Steve, and by and by the time everybody hears this, I mean they'll probably have secured their second straight NL pennant. So, wow. Uh, so I'm really I'm really excited for that one. Confidence is important. Yeah, that'll yeah. age well. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So. As much as I know we're talking about sports later on, let's pivot away from sports for a few minutes. Yeah, we'll get to it. Mm-hmm. So, Alex, what did you want to start with today? Well, I want to introduce a new segment. Um, I want to tell everybody, you know, welcome to a new segment on Pro Se, and that is called Sir Grant Corner. Sir Grant Corner! Sir Grant Corner! <laughs> Sir, Sir Grant, Grant Corner! Sir Grant Corner is the hottest new podcast segment around. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone loves it. It's where you come to... Uh, we're going to catch you up on all of the hottest cases that have been selected, uh, newly selected for Supreme Court review. So that's uh, that's what we're talking about now. All right. So we have Sir Grant Corner. What's the first one? Welcome to Sir Grant Corner. First up, uh, we is this very closely watched privacy case. It's really interesting. Um, that's going to see the justices tackle this simple but pretty crucial question, and that is whether or not the government has the authority to uh, obtain personal email data from servers that are stored overseas. Um, We're all sort of familiar with the concept that the government can execute search warrants and get email data from servers here, but there's a case before them now that will examine sort of how far that, you know, they can reach with that power. Huh. So... What's actually at play in this case? Who, who's involved and what's what's happening? At the center of this case is Microsoft, which is a little company out of Seattle you may have heard of, Microsoft, hmm. uh, which has been challenging the government's attempts to access the email of one of its customers that's uh, stored on a mainframe in Ireland. This particular customer is implicated in this like drug trafficking ring. And uh, basically, the government has since, since 2013 been trying to 
obtain email data from this account. And they've been going back and forth in the courts. Uh, Microsoft uh, has had the last word on this. They scored a victory at the Second Circuit, which basically ruled that the data is beyond the reach of investigators. They cannot access that overseas data. And that has teed up this this high court fight. So that's one pretty discreet uh, fact pattern there. But you sort of nodded to this being much broader than that. What yeah, are the stakes well, here? Well, that's why the high court takes these cases, right? Um, as with anything involving the combination of tech companies, data, law enforcement, mm-hmm. you know, this has become something of a flashpoint for controversy over the intersection of the right to privacy and the right to, you know, secure national interests and enforce laws and things like that. So, you know, on one side here, you have Microsoft and it has either explicit or suggested support throughout this process from companies like Amazon, Apple, and Google. And they're arguing that basically a ruling in favor of the government is going to, you know, put their customers in jeopardy and sort of raise doubts about the security of, uh, you know, cloud-based data storage where data is kind of everywhere and nowhere and, you know, who can reach it and right, things and, like and that. Right, and stuff that's just getting bigger and bigger as we move forward. Totally. Yep. And then on the other side, you know, you have the federal government along with 33 state attorney generals and any law enforcement proponent, um, if you talk to them about these privacy concerns, would probably say something like, you know, have you ever heard of something called 9-11? Uh, <laughs> right. You know, we have to, we need a wide berth to enforce laws and, you know, prevent terrorism. And people have brought up, you know, international child sex trafficking rings and things like that, which we've talked about before in the context of, uh, you know, security and things like that. So those are sort of the main fault lines here. Uh, The operative law is something called the Stored Communications Act. And that is basically the closest thing we have to a bright line on this. But that law was written in 1986. Oh, that's definitely up to date then. People on both sides of the issue have said, like, no matter what the court rules it will almost certainly give uh, fuel for Congress to update that law. Right. Obviously, you know, this was written when, you know, cloud computing was a glint in some programmer's eye. So right. a lot at stake there. And you can see sort of, I mean, the, the fault lines are pretty clear and uh, the implications are All pretty right. high. So it's Sir Grant Corner. Yeah, I look- imagine we have more than one. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I thought, I mean, to have one thing on the corner is yeah, a little it's a, is a very little lonely fair. corner. Right? <laughs> so uh, next uh, here on CGC, uh, we are going <laughs> to be examining an antitrust case that could have implications for uh, those scrappy underdogs uh, in the credit card industry. Oh, yeah, so. they, they need a lot of help. What, what are they looking for here? <clears throat> so on Monday, the justices said uh, they agreed to take up this case that targets um, American Express. And basically, American Express has rules in place that prevent retailers and merchants from steering customers to use other credit cards Mm -hmm. that charge lower service fees for the merchants, basically. And this is going to hopefully put a button on this enforcement effort that's like been budding for like seven years. Like you charge a minimum for one of them and you don't charge it for the other, things like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. And so basically the way this works is like every credit card company, American Express has agreements in place with retailers that say, you will accept our cards. Mm -hmm. In exchange, they charge fees. So they're called swipe fees, Mm -hmm. right? Um, American Express has long had swipe fees that are higher than those of like Visa and MasterCard. And to kind of offset that, they also have in their agreements what are known as anti-steering rules. Mm -hmm. And that basically says, okay, you, Target or Best Buy or other merchant, you cannot incentivize your customers to use other credit cards just because they charge you lower fees than we do. Yeah. Does that make sense? So it's not offsetting it. It's offsetting it for, or it's offsetting it for them. Yeah, like the, right, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, that's, yeah. that's yeah. what I meant. Sorry if that yeah. was unclear. Yeah. So anyway, a group. So, yeah, so, they, so Amex, I'm sure, makes the argument of, well, this is good for competition yeah. because 
we can be competitive with mm -hmm. MasterCard and Visa. Yeah, but you'll be shocked to know that uh, a group of 11 state attorney generals that are pursuing this case uh, have a different view. <laughs> They're saying, you know, you, Amex, are putting your thumb on the scale and you're not letting, you know, sort of the market work and you're, you're trying to position yourself in a way that's more advantageous when compared to your to your big competitors. So, so we're it's at the battle of the competition argument. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's, it's amazing how that stuff goes. So we're at Supreme Court because it is Sir Grant Corner. We are uh, indeed. How did we get here? You mentioned that it was brought by state attorneys general, but how did we get to here? Thank you for recognizing the sanctity of Sir Grant Corner. I appreciate sure. that. Um, so this all got kicked off actually in the Obama administration in 2010. It uh, was actually one of the Obama administration's first financial sector enforcement efforts. And they went after not only Amex, but Visa and MasterCard as well. They had some similar provisions. Visa and MasterCard eventually settled, but Amex kept up the fight and they've been going back and forth in the courts on this. And Amex has actually, this much like the Microsoft case, this also traces back to the Second Circuit. And the most recent ruling on this, um, the Second Circuit deemed that the rules are actually above board, that they don't violate competition rules or, or, or antitrust concerns, things like that. Mm -hmm. And so we, we have the fight that we have now. Um, the stakes are pretty high here, though, because, you know, retailers are obviously desperate to do anything they can to tamp down fees that they pay. Mm -hmm. And I've seen literature that suggests that swipe fees paid by the retail industry were something like $50 billion last year. <laughs> wow. Um, wow. So they've got a vested interest in seeing how this goes. So um, like I said, it was taken up on Monday. They expect to hear arguments early next year, a decision by June. Great. Thanks for concluding Sir Grant Corner. We'll check back in with Opinion Outpost in 2018. Oh, wow. How these turn All right. Out. Well, wow. Yeah. You're sitting on that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's also geographical. Like Love it. Corner Outpost. Yeah, 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 Come on, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on All back right. down to Sir Grant Corner. Uh, we got all the we got all the good Sir Grants here. All right, so we're out of Sir Grant Corner. What are we talking about next, Bill? We're going from the corner to a Manhattan federal courthouse where last week, auto racer Scott Tucker and his attorney, uh, a guy named Timothy Muir, were convicted of operating a two billion dollar criminal payday loan empire. Th this is one of those Mad Lib type stories that we do sometimes. Like he's an auto racer yeah, running yeah, a payday yeah. loan scam for two billion dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and this one was very. It's like white collar crime is often very ugly, but this yeah, no, like this is going to get particularly crazy. despicable. Yeah, gross. Um, so what exactly did he do? So for more than fifteen years, Tucker used a series of small companies to offer you know illegal payday loans, little short, yeah, small loans to people with like hilariously yeah. comically yeah. high interest. sledgehammer interest rates. Right. That like yeah. you almost if you if you don't pay it back immediately, you can never pay it back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, these become predatory really fast. Actually used to work on uh, some advocacy stuff about this when yeah. I was in law school. And they're crazy. Like the percentages end up being like 700% to well, pay so it back. Well, so Tucker, or... the prosecutor said Tucker charged routinely. It was between 600 and 700% interest. That's insane. And there were some of these loans that were at 1,000% interest. Good so Lord. Wow. Well, just, anyway, yeah. It's so, yeah, it was just designed to prey on people that, that, you know, that were vulnerable. And that's pretty gross in its own right. But as you alluded to already, this got even got even uglier yeah. when, you, when we get down into it. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, it's, I mean, for one thing, it's just huge. That, right. You know, they, they, these, this guy's different little shell companies lent, like loaned money to 4.5 million people. Wow. In every state in the country. Gee. They said the entire time that they were fully aware of what they were doing, that, you know, they went so far as to create scripts for the people in their call centers oh, to boy. like explain away why it wasn't illegal and why it wasn't abusive. <laughs> so, it gets ickier as you go along. So as this was happening, clearly started people started to catch wind of it and, you know, 
state attorneys general were putting it together and investigations were filed against them. And in several states um, where they were facing these kind of things, Tucker devised schemes to claim that his companies were owned by Native American groups to shield him from using the sovereign immunity of a Native American group to shield him from these investigations. There are so many groups claiming that Native American sovereign immunity. I know. We just talked about this in the the patent. patent. Yeah. 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 Um, So at one point, so they were facing like this same kind of pressure from investigators uh, and then they started facing pressure over the Native American structures that they built. Uh, Muir, the lawyer, set up this. He like filed a fake lawsuit uh, that you know that was against his own uh, that like that was filed against his own people. Um, <laughs> so it, you know, and it worked. Um, in 2010, it, it it cleared them of some of these these legal so headaches. So he basically that they were... filed that suit to try to set a precedent, right? I don't that, know like, the exact to... details, but okay. it was the emails of them talking about filing this fake case were trotted out in court That's during the... so crazy. <laughs> so this was great. This was from Pete Brush, our reporter who was in yep. the courthouse covering the case. And they trotted out these emails where Muir, the lawyer, was talking to Tucker and he made these allusions to... Uh, I don't know if you guys remember the Eddie Murphy movie, Coming to America. Sure. Love that movie. Yeah. Um, and there's this scene where Eddie Murphy exits the stage right after singing this terrible number yeah. called Sexual Chocolate. So Muir wrote, this should be, quote, the sexual chocolate, end quote, of my legal career. I should just drop the mic and walk off the stage. (laughs) So he said that after this litigation sham thing had either worked or he had filed it or something, but basically bragging about how clever it was to file this sort of fake case. You know, I can always appreciate a good movie reference as I've demonstrated on the show, but even, but in this context, I cannot sanction this, this, uh, this buffoonery. No. And it, (laughs) nice. Um, and it, uh, it, it clearly didn't work, uh, didn't help him in front of the jury. Right. Yeah. Let's talk about you. You mentioned a conviction. What's, uh, yeah. what's going so, on? So um, there were other very notable things that were read in front of the jury. Check out all of Pete's coverage. But um, both of them were convicted on all 14 counts that they faced. It was racketeering, money laundering, wire fraud, unlawful collection of debt. There's a federal debt collection statute. They violated all sorts of other stuff like that. So Tucker is 55, the former race car driver it must be stated again yeah right um he's 55 and he faces just years and years in prison for this um muir is 46 and strangely enough is an australian national okay so he is likely to be deported over this i'd say Um, so and then i don't know how that works in terms of but i assume he'll face prosecution when he gets home or something like that so yeah it's uh pretty icky stuff yeah these guys guys really got their money's worth of this geez yeah 4.5 million people my Lord. Yeah. So, um, not pleasant, guys. Yeah. It's kind of good to see justice done. <laughs> it is. Thanks for bringing that one, Bill. Yeah, sure. The NFL has had no shortage of controversies in recent years. This season, following the lead of Colin Kaepernick, numerous players have staged on-field protests of racial injustice, drawing a rebuke from President Trump and turning the league into a political battlefield. And over the past few years, the league has faced harsh scrutiny over its response to allegations of domestic violence by players, most recently involving Dallas Cowboys star running back Ezekiel Elliott. With both these issues at the center of legal battles this week, we're joined by Law360 senior sports reporter Zach Zagger to break it all down for us. Welcome, Zach. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Young ZZ. (laughs) So... I don't always follow sports, but even I know who Colin Kaepernick is because it's 
been just in the news generally about his protests. Can you orient the rest of the listeners about what exactly happened with him? Yes, Amber, this has become quite the hot-button issue that's really transcended sports. Uh, Last year, Colin Kaepernick, while he was the quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, or a quarterback, I should say, uh, he began sitting and then later kneeling during the national anthem uh, before games. Uh, He said that this was in protest uh, for a number of issues that are similar to those raised by the Black Lives Matter movement. And then a number of other players that joined with him. However, at the end of the last season, he opted out of his contract with the 49ers, and he's since gone unsigned this year. Some players have continued to carry on the protests, uh, but things really hit a tipping point last month when uh, President Trump at a political rally in Alabama indirectly called the players sons of bitches and called on the NFL owners to either bench or fire these players who are continuing the yeah, protests. Yeah, he basically made it like a new front in like the culture war. Yeah, saying, yeah, yeah this so was, yeah. And then Trump, of course, has tweeted about it a bunch and kept it really in the news. Yes, uh, through a series of tweets and other uh, actions, kept and it in the news. So now Kaepernick has has not been able to find a team to sign him sort of controversially, right? Correct. And that's led him to bring this collusion claim. It's a claim under the collective bargaining agreement uh, where he alleges that the owners or the league and some of the owners are colluding to prevent him from joining a team. Because I think a lot of people, a lot of a lot of football fans would tell you that that perhaps there are players on the field right now that are at least, at least Kaepernick could get a shot at a role in a, on a team. Correct. There are many NFL experts who are surprised that he's not at least a backup quarterback right. on, a, on a roster right now. There's not now. a Monday that goes by without a think piece about how bad the quarterbacking has gotten in the <laughs> NFL. So, yeah, and especially like with all the injuries that go on and stuff. So um, let's talk about the sort of legal issues at play. I know you talked to a lot of labor lawyers about the strength of his case and that the collective bargaining agreement provides for stuff like this. What did they tell you? What what kind of road is he facing here? Well, he faces an uphill battle, and it's really for two reasons. One, he has to prove that the teams colluded against him. Uh, it's not enough for him to just say that he did these protests and he has this baggage and that's why they don't want to sign him. He has to prove that two teams agreed or w- at least one team in the NFL front office agreed to keep him out of the league. Mm-hmm. And, and talk to us about the standard. And then, yeah, go well, ahead. And then the second point is he has to meet the standard uh, okay, yeah. uh, to prove the collusion, which is going to need some uh, smoking gun evidence, so yeah. to speak, uh, a communication between two owners, an email, a text, or he's going to have to find a witness who's willing to, to right. say that he witnessed two owners uh, collude against Kaepernick. So it's an uphill climb for Kaepernick here. Correct. And especially with this arbitration process, he doesn't have the full access to discovery that he would have in the federal courts. So Sounds like that's going to play out more in the court of public opinion than uh, before the CBA. Let's pivot to the other big story we want to talk about. Ezekiel Elliott was making headlines in Manhattan federal court this week. Walk us through the backstory of why we're talking about Ezekiel Elliott, what happened prior to this, and, and then we can get on to what happened this week. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, Ezekiel Elliott, he's a quarter, or not quarterback, a running back for the uh, Dallas Cowboys, and he was accused before he even entered the league uh, by an ex-female acquaintance uh, of domestic abuse. Mm-hmm. Charges were never brought against him, uh, but the league investigated, and after a whole year, they finally suspended him for six games. And this comes in the context, I think, of the league sort of being dinged about how they responded to these allegations of domestic violence. Yeah, most definitely. The league office, uh, Roger Goodell in particular, has come under a lot of pressure to come down hard on these players uh, who are alleged to have 
you know, engage in domestic or sexual abuse. And they did that here. And they did, exactly. Um, so the NFL, PA, the Players Union, and Ezekiel Elliott uh, filed suit in the federal courts. And they tried to really jump the gun here before an arbitration decision was even issued and, and filed suit in uh, Texas. Uh, that's because they wanted to avoid what happened with uh, Tom Brady in his case, the yeah. Deflategate. We we talked about this briefly a couple of uh, a couple of weeks ago on the pod. But I'm glad you're here to talk us through it in a little more detail. And one of the things we talked about then is that they filed in Texas, like you say, to elude mm-hmm. uh, the Brady precedent. Can you tell us just briefly, like what that's about and how that and how that played out for him? Yeah, well, in Deflategate, uh, the Second Circuit eventually ruled in the NFL's favor, uh, saying that the courts really shouldn't second-guess these arbitration decisions. Mm-hmm. They upheld the ban against Tom, and, uh, Tom Brady. And upheld right. the ban, yeah. So he, Tom Brady sat out four games. So Ezekiel Elliott wanted to avoid that precedent that was set in the Second Circuit. So mm-hmm. he, he, he filed suit, or the NFLPA actually filed suit mm-hmm. in, in Texas before an arbitrator had even issued his decision. Uh, that ended up backfiring, yeah. and uh, they ended up in New York federal court anyways. The Fifth Circuit upheld the, the NFL's uh, suspension of, of, of Elliott, right? Yeah. Correct. At first, he, he got a uh, ruling in his favor, but then the Fifth Circuit uh, dismissed the case, saying that he never really should have filed there to begin with, Right. Uh, that the proper court was in New York. And that's where we are now, mm-hmm. so take us through yeah. what happened in New York this week. Well, so the the NFL, uh, obviously, that they had brought up this Brady case saying that that stands for the proposition that, you know, he can't bring these kind of suits arguing that his arbitration lacked fundamental fairness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, there's a big yeah. deference to arbitrators. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah. the thing. Um, and then this week, actually, uh, a federal judge disagreed with the NFL on that point and issued an order that's going to keep him on the field at least for the next couple weeks. Interesting. So, But now you, one has to think that it's going to go before the Second Circuit, and we're going to go through the whole deflate gate process again. Right. right. So this order is only temporary. It lasts through the end of this month. Uh, however, the NFL is probably going to try to expedite this process and get that order uh, changed. Interesting. And I think I saw a headline today that, you know, rumors, sort of backroom stuff, but that that Elliot and the NFL are talking about possibly a, a settlement to deal with this. And, and so it'll be interesting to see what, what plays out. Yeah, the uh, NFL and the union's labor lawyers working overtime here. Yep. Thanks for being with us, Zach. No problem. to end our show with something offbeat and I've brought one today guys to talk yeah, about. Very good. It's all about catfishing. So do you remember that MTV show that is called Catfish? Sure. Yeah. And the documentary too. And yeah. Manti Teo. Yeah. So yeah, we've got too. a real life version of that and mm. if people aren't familiar with that term or the show, catfishing is basically when you pretend to be somebody else online to mm-hmm. trick somebody into something. Mm-hmm. So now the catfishing has got its little whiskers into the legal profession. It here. sure has. Nice. Um, so we've got a trio of people a woman named Priscilla Ann Ellis, a lawyer named Perry Don Cortez, and Ellis's daughter, Kanita Rayshon Johnson. And these are their real names because they sound <laughs> like they're scam names. I would say this they is... are the real names. Yeah. This sounds like a pulp novel yeah. thing. So okay. they are scam artists, though, and the okay. three of them got together and they had a bunch of different hustles. Mm-hmm. Sounds great. So the reason we're talking about them this week is that Ellis was sentenced to a maximum of 40 years for... Whoa. Wire fraud, conspiracy to commit mail fraud, money laundering, and she's ordered to pay a total judgment of $13.1 million. A lot of fraud going on in the show today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so wild. walk us through the details of this fraud. Well, they swindled money 
through setting up bogus dating site profiles mm-hmm. and basically this is, catfishing this, this, people. This is another thing we've talked about before that the uh, you know we pe- did people using the... dating sites to uh, curry favor over There's their enemies. There's a lot of uh, yeah. bad things yeah, people are doing yeah. with that. So yeah, so they did that and they conned people into wiring the money basically, mm-hmm. but. They also had a legal angle. Okay. So they conned law firms into writing them checks for bogus settlements, which was like a separate scam, but part of this overall trial. Wait, so they said that they were representing someone who had said it? Or what, what's the... So so here's what they did. Um, this scheme is separate from the dating profile. Okay, you're right. Ellis and Cortese, who's, he's the lawyer, so you would imagine he had a good bit to do with figuring out this plot. He's got the imprimatur of legitimacy about him. So they contacted a bunch of law firms and pretended that they needed representation for transactional type disputes. Okay. They convinced the firms to take them on as clients or provisional clients and then came back later and purported that, oh, it's already been resolved. Okay. But you've helped us in the legal representation. So then the two of them (laughs) would turn around and pretend to be the opposing entities. No way. And they would say, oh, your client said we should reach out to you and we'll send you the settlement funds. <laughs> so they would send huh. bogus cashier's, cashier's checks, checks yeah. that were forged. This is where Ellis's daughter comes in. She had a job at uh, a Capital One bank branch. So she'd get a Whoa. low amount cashier's check, a real one, then send it to them. They would use that as the basis for the forgery. So they'd forge this big dollar amount, Man. send it to the firm, and instruct the firm. You know, Then they'd go back to posing as clients. Right. Mm-hmm. And they'd be like, oh, you've gotten the settlement. Wire that to these accounts for us, oh our my. portion of the that settlement. That is so good. Jeez. I mean, it's complicated, but... No, but it's, genius, I respect right? the scam, you know? I mean, the hustle. I mean, this is... That is wild stuff. And wait, did, so it's a, there's a mother-daughter involved in this? Is that, yeah. is that what you said? This calls to mind the 2001 romantic comedy Heartbreakers. Yeah. Oh, Bernie Weaver does. and Jennifer Love Hewitt. They sure. were running like, they were trying to scam husbands out of money. But Well, that's not that dissimilar to the catfishing angle they had. Sure. Where they just, yeah, you're like, pretending to be other people. romantic interest in somebody got them to wire <laughs> funds. Well. So they basically were going on all fronts. Can we scam some law firms? Can we scam some individual people? Wow. Yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. It's got to um, be bad to... You know, you're like a law firm. You're supposed to be. I, yeah, that's you're supposed what, to be like pretty smart. Yeah, and I mean, especially when you're you've been duped into representing people you didn't represent. And, yeah, no, right. that's kinda, not a good look. So what happened here? So all three of these people were convicted this time last year, and the reason we're talking about it now is because of that big sentencing for Ellis, who, by all accounts, was the main figure in this scam, mm-hmm. um, and she got the max sentence. The judge was pretty ticked off. Yeah, I heard you say 40 years or up, up, up to 40 years. Hard like, labor. 40 yeah, years. Right. And that big fine amount, which includes uh, $3.8 million in restitution to some <laughs> of these victims. But here's what I really like about this, this sentencing development. The Florida federal judge that handed down the sentence said about Ellis, quote, was a brazen, aggressive, unapologetic fraudster and money launderer and then called Cortese, that's the lawyer guy, a pliable, obedient, and appreciative tool for the criminal network. Wow. Yeah, pretty bad. And then we talked about how the daughter was also involved, and the judge sort of said that the daughter was bright and promising and that this is sort of sad. Yeah. But then went on to say, but the facts are brutally clear. She was a knowing, devious, and greedy conspirator, a series of facts attributable to the reckless and predatory character wow. of her mother. The judge Whoa. just yeah. ethering all three of these people. Just lambasted that mom. Oh, we've so. talked we've talked before about steps that attorneys should take to make sure they don't 
we've been talking about in the context of like security breaches and stuff. Fishing. Right. right. Well, this is this is to be wary of catfishing. Yeah. Let's, let's be on the let's be on the lookout <laughs> right. there. Right. All guys forms of girls. fishing bad. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks for uh, talking this one <laughs> yeah, through with thanks, me, guys. Amber. Yeah, that was a good one. Thanks for being with me today, Alex. Thanks. And Bill. See you next week, guys. We have several other people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. We'd also like to thank our guests, Zach Zagger, and contributing reporters this week, Allison Grandy, Pete Brush, Matthew Perlman, and Nathan Hill. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about in today's show, we've got a lot of coverage on our website. Check us out at law360.com podcast. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks, and join us again next week.